1: Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan. Joined here today by Lyle, hi, and Zoe, returning guest. Hi, um, Zoe. You might recall was on with us a couple weeks ago talking about women's sports, and she's coming back on our show to discuss her labor, namely, you know, writing on the internet in 2018 and trying to make money doing that. It's a difficult field, as I think all of us can attest. Um. Zoe, do you want to just give a rundown of, like, your experience uh, in journalism and in writing?
2: Um, Well, I started writing about hockey about 10 years ago. Um, And at that time, I think I was really excited about it, like, to start. And then I realized very quickly that I would never really make any money doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And also that they probably wouldn't hire me, considering the sort of person I am. There's a huge, you know... Misogyny aspect of that whole field as well, but right. I started a website about three years ago called Victory press with the goal of being able to pay freelancers to write about women's sports and I mean it's not like anyone's making a living wage it's just trying to give them something back because the majority of this work previously and still is done totally for free.
1: Right. Um, and that's something I have experienced doing. Uh, you know, I, I came out of college, you know, four years ago now uh, with a journalism degree and a lot of anxiety about what I would actually do with that. And I eventually started writing about soccer for a blog that like had a reasonable audience, like right? um, soccer, is sort of a niche sport in the US. And so this website was able, it was actually, you know, it was breaking stories and a Local market in New York City, and yet I wasn't making any money to do that. I was uh, told when I was hired, so to speak, is that, you know, this will look great on my resume, but money wasn't really discussed. And I think there are a lot of outlets out there that are operating on that business model.
2: Yeah, and not just in sports, like a lot of other content is done for free or very, very little money as well, particularly. Like media stuff, like TV reviews, blogs, movies, politics.
1: Right. Um, Um, There's there's sort of an exposure economy where you're told that, you know, you're not going to get money off of this, but hopefully one day people will notice your work and want to pay you. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Right. I mean, I guess I'll just bring in my own personal experience. I'm a graduate student in history, um, and I've been writing on the side for, uh, I guess, about five years now, um, freelancing. And, um, you know, I have have the kind of background. I'm white. I'm male. I I was a veteran in the Marine Corps. I, I was a combat veteran in Afghanistan. So I have the kind of background that you would think if anyone is able to, to break in this market, it would be someone like, you know, I'm, I'm working on a PhD, um, but, you know, it, it's been just a perpetual struggle for me as well, and, uh, you know, and it, it makes me think that this, this, the whole market is just, uh, just a disaster zone for, for the actual workers themselves.
2: Because, like, uh, I think what happens is, like, they'll hire an editor and kind of give that person you know, carte blanche to do whatever they want for, like, a small amount of money, and then a very small amount of that money gets distributed down to the people who are actually contributing the work. Yeah, Um, And sometimes it's just nothing at all.
1: Now, Lyle, I know you've talked on this show in the past about how even just, even for outlets that will pay you, the act of, like, actually negotiating that fee and after you have done so, getting the money can be a struggle.
3: Yeah, so I always, like... Um, I I operated from the assumption in the beginning that like I would never write for free because you know I had read articles that said you're a scab if you do that, <laughs> which, you know, I'm very ambivalent about. I think and, and to some extent they're right. I mean, I am in academia. I you know I, I probably have a, a more kind of more secure, stable pathways ahead of me than than a lot of other freelance writers. And I was getting paid a stipend. I'm not anymore, but I was for a while. So. I was worried about that, and I, so I, for my struggle was just trying to get paid something, so I wasn't Mm -hmm. scabbing, and, you know, I never really got paid a lot, and there were times where I got asked to write something, um, and the, there was a strong implication I would get paid, uh, and then, you know, I didn't, I never ended up getting paid, even after, like, we talked terms and stuff like that, so, um... Yeah, it's just it, it, it. You know, it's obviously it is not. It's not built for us. It's built
1: for for the owners. Um. Yeah. Just to build on that, like I have experienced. You know, I would pitch articles to places. You know, I'd say, you know, this is something I'm capable of reporting on. You know, and they'd say, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We'd love to have this piece. And then I would actually put in the work. I would report the story and then you know submit it and not hear back for couple months, and at that point, and only after that couple months where I'd basically given up and said, okay, I'll place it somewhere else, you know, put it on the blog I was already writing for, I would, you know, get an email and say, yeah, we can take this, but you should know that you're not going to get paid for this, right? You know that, right? Um, so it's a very degrading experience all around, even setting aside the actual low pay that you can expect to get for it.
2: hmm um, I have had experience just like deciding I need to do the story. I know no one's going to pay me to do it. Um, so I'm just going to report it anyway. And you know, that ends up just you spending a lot of your own money and time and resources, putting that in, in just to get the story out there. And then, you know, you've spent hundreds or possibly thousands of dollars, which is something I've actually done to report a story, um, that I didn't get paid for. And because I thought it was worth it.
3: Yeah, Yeah.
1: no, it's because there are so many stories that I think we all can agree need to be told that aren't being told by the current, you know, outlets that exist. And that's something we'll get into later on the show. But just sort of I, th- I think all of our experiences suggest that there's a real problem in this industry and it's something that needs to fixing if the industry is going to survive into the future
2: definitely um i think that for my part the biggest change for me has been being able to make money through direct subscriptions on websites like patreon Mm -hmm. um but even when you're doing something like that it's really hard to get ahead of the other big outlets that are funded by advertising and venture capital um because that Is considered more legitimate still.
1: Yeah. And even the, even the outlets that are scrimping to get by and not paying their writers often, you know, aren't able to make that business model work if, you know, if they're reporting on something that's in a niche or they're, you know, because the site I had been writing for, uh, it never paid me, but I know the editor had a separate full-time job And yet, after a couple years, he found that he could not keep it going. It was, you know, more money than it was worth to have it running.
2: Yeah, I definitely experienced that with Victory Press. Like, I make just enough money to break even. Um, And the amount of, like, other money that I put into it, that's my own money for my, like, my day job. And just, like, the amount of time that I spend is really draining. Um, Because it's basically like having a second job that I don't get paid for.
1: Yeah, Um, just if you if you're willing to talk about the economics of that a bit, like how much goes into that because you have to pay for probably like server space and the domain name and.
2: So yeah, I mostly pay for the domain stuff myself. Okay. Um, As for the server space, I try to take that out of the business account when there's money in it. But like, let's say it comes due and there's no money there, then I would just pay for it out of my own account. Right. Um. So, and I'm on, luckily I'm on a legacy plan with our uh, content management system, which is called Ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on like a legacy plan with them. So I am only paying like about $100 a year for the service, which is very good. They've increased their rates um, in the last few years. We, and so if, I'm able to get a discount on
1: yeah. that. Yeah. Well, if you didn't have that discount, how much would it run?
2: Probably more like 400 I think. Wow.
1: Yeah, so that's Yeah,
2: and I couldn't afford that.
1: Right. No, um so there are huge barriers to entry if you're trying to uh make it in this field, I think is obvious. Yeah. yeah I,
2: definitely. I, like you basically have to know people um and maybe get someone to throw you some money. So yeah. like if you have a Twitter following you might be able to say crowdfund stuff, but that won't necessarily make you a living wage. Mm-hmm.
3: So I guess kind of the elephant in the room here is we're talking about your own situation as someone who's trying to build something from the outside of the mainstream, uh, and clearly that's mm-hmm. very difficult for you. But what's what's so stunning right now is even the even the giants in the in in the in the industry are struggling. Um, so you know, I have in mind uh, the mass layoffs that just happened at New York Daily News, um, where you basically. From my understanding, you had this kind of vulture capitalist organization. I f- I'm forgetting the name right now. I think it's like all, all, yeah, yeah, it doesn't, uh, matter. yeah, yeah. Mean. But they they bought up all these uh, local media markets and and not so local. I mean, the New York Daily News, I think, is it, it, in a way it's local, but in a way it's national. Um, and they bought up all these newspapers: the L.A. Times, the Chicago, Chicago Tribune. I think the organization is Tronk and um, and it's just all about cutting labor costs. So they're basically just laying off everyone. They're, they're making, you know, their excuses that they're doing a pivot to video, that everything's going to be video content. And they're, they're destroying um, the ability to do real journalism from within, you know, the actual uh, media giant world itself. And I'm just curious if... I think yeah. that
2: there's a huge push to actually, like, automate a lot of journalist jobs, which is really scary to me. Um, like the act of copy editing or the act of generating a breaking news story, like they're definitely trying to make AI responsible for that, right. um, which like in the circles of online that I'm on, like on Twitter, we all joke about that. But I think we tend to forget that people take that really seriously because it means that they could code something and pay one guy to code it instead of having, like, a newsroom or a news desk that consists of, like, three or four people. Right.
1: Like, to that point, I think the New York Times tried to lay off a bunch of its copy editors last year, and they saw real pushback from the rest of the newsroom.
2: Yeah, and also their copy edit like, their stories suffered. There were, like, actual errors that would have been corrected by copy editors, like, immediately after that happened in the New York Times, as I recall
1: right that spell check as it turns out is not sufficient
2: yeah
1: um and i i think the point about twitter is interesting because like i follow a bunch of writers on twitter and you know as i was you know trying to use twitter to build a following and you know maybe attract the eye of somebody who has actual money you know i would see you know writers that i respected and people who you know had followers or followings bigger than mine you know Get laid off. I would see, you know, them switching jobs every few months because, you know, the industry is so unstable.
2: Yeah, and even though uh, Twitter accounts apparently can have dollar values placed on them, there was a recent lawsuit um, where a guy was switching to a different outlet, and his old employer tried to sue him for his Twitter account because it had previously been operated by that outlet. And they said that, like, the account itself is worth $150,000. And it's like, but he's not seeing that money, you know?
1: The idea of a Twitter account being worth $150,000 is a bit ludicrous. But, uh, it, yeah, it's, you know, outlets will come and go, but these writers' lives are left in the wake, you know? you, you There have been a lot of high-profile efforts to start up websites and, you know, you know, disrupt the, you know, coverage of be it sports or news. And a lot of those haven't lasted, even, you know, despite good work by the reporters it was paying by the journalists and writers on its staff. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, sports is sort of, uh, well, actually, I think you're an interesting case here, because as you pointed out, the field of sports journalism is very male heavy. It's filled with people who look like me, and you noted that you faced, you know, difficulty as a woman in this field.
2: Yeah, I mean, I started out really just doing, like, fan blog type stuff, but that's how a lot of journalists in this day and age kind of get their start. They blog about it, and then they get noticed by somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the dream. I started doing, you know, a kind of woman-focused fan blog, basically, and I realized very quickly that a lot of, I made a lot of people very angry, um, and that I was not going to be friends or, like, be cool with the actual people who were the sports journalists who worked for the newspapers, because um, newspapers were still a thing 10 mm-hmm. years ago, really, right. um, like local news, newspaper sports journalists. Yeah. And I just they were all dudes and they were all disgusting. Like they would say disgusting things to women on the Internet. They would write these columns that were very misogynistic all the time. And I was just like, no, that's absolutely not a place that I'm going to be welcomed unless (laughs) I modify my behavior in a certain way. Um, And I decided not to pursue that path. But I know a lot of people who have chosen to pursue that path and have gotten themselves into very... Bad like labor situations with bosses who were harassing them, or just you know straight up being abusive, uh, criticizing their work in ways that their you know their male counterparts didn't experience, mm-hmm. um, and that's just overwhelmingly common. That's basically status quo for being a sports journalist. Um, I think it's you know at every level, broadcast, print, online, like. I don't know any uh, woman or AFAM person in who has not experienced harassment uh, being a sports writer.
1: Yeah, uh, media as a whole isn't particularly diverse, but sports journalism especially is sort of like an archetypical uh, old boys club.
2: Yeah, and they get away with it too, I think because of the subject matter that they write about is often white male
1: focus.
2: Mm-hmm. Um like even in sports where you have more diversity, a lot of like the executives and the people who are higher up in organizations are white men. Right. Um, so that just builds in there.
3: So I'm curious cycle. So I'm curious, Zoe. Just listening to you speak about this. Um, first of all, I mean, I know there are certain like journalism guilds and there's kind of quasi union organizations, at least in certain media pockets. For, for the writers and editors themselves, um, is there any of that? You know, have you experienced? Uh, I realize you're a freelancer, but you have friends that are parts of unions in some way. Do you think these unions are helpful when it comes to keeping in check to some degree um, the kind of misogyny you're talking about? Uh, is there is there a future path forward for some kind of unionization or other mechanisms that we can put that that um, journalists can put in place? to um, um, yeah, to protect themselves?
2: I think that for that to work, marginalized journalists would have to have leverage. And right now they don't, mostly because they can get, you know, some recently graduated white male, you know, 20-something to do the work for the same amount of money or less because he, say, lives with his parents or gets money from his parents. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really just, it's self-perpetuating because we're not valuing the work. So therefore we're not valuing the workers. Um, And if the workers stop interacting, there's just, it's limitless who's going to come in to fill the void. Um, Like they would be able to find somebody else. Uh, It's not like it's necessarily highly specialized in the sense that like, you know, you might have to be trained up on how to produce a sports story, but it's not, I don't think it has the same leverage as say like, you know, coal miners unionizing because that's like very dangerous, very physical work that requires a certain amount of technical skill. Um, And I think that we've, because we've lowered the technical barrier to entry so much in online content, um, like being mildly tech savvy is really enough to get get the ball rolling. Uh, And as I've learned over the years, the last, 10 years or so, most of these people who, you know, have say really big deal sports columns in local markets, they can't necessarily write very well. They're not incredible writers. Um, So quality, at least in sports and frankly, in a lot of column writing uh, and reporting, like quality of work is not necessarily a high priority. Um, So it's really just in it. Like, a pile on pile on pile of the work being devalued, I think. Uh, and I don't know what the next step is. I do think that, you know, if if workers at like different outlets start unionizing, that like I've seen a lot of um, a lot of outlets unionizing recently. Like uh, the New Yorker, for example, unionized recently. I think. Um, yeah. Like if that keeps happening, then and it can keep. Kind of percolating down to other smaller outlets as well. That would be a good start, but I think first you'd have to actually value the product. And if that that kind of segues into something else that we wanted to talk about, which was like you know advertising, like the fact that these are this is advertising focused. So it's really not about the content anymore. Like all of the income's coming from advertising. So when you're the when you're not actually trying to support the content, you're trying to support the click, that strongly devalues like the actual work itself, because it doesn't matter if people read it, it doesn't matter if it's good, it just matters that someone saw the ad um, that's associated with it.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing the pivot to video, so to speak, is because the autoplay videos, you know, at the top of the page, or if it's just a video and not an article... Uh, they have ads that play before the video. And uh, these outlets often get paid based on how many people, you know, encounter that ad, regardless of whether they're actually watching it, which is sort of, you know, it's not a sustainable business model, because I feel like eventually somebody is going to figure out that, hey, we're not actually getting anything from these ads. And just to go back to sports journalism and particular, I think the problems are more intense in that field because it's something that a lot of young people want to cover. Like, it's something that a lot of people, you know, myself included for a time, are willing to do for free as a passion project. You know, we get told, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And so we do what we love for free, which is sort of insidious in a way.
2: Yeah, definitely. Like you don't get a ton of kids like coming up out of their undergrad degree, you know, real excited to say right about like local mineral rights or something right. or, you know, politics
1: to cover um, the uh, so there
2: is definitely definitely a glut of sports writers, young, aspiring sports writers out there.
1: Yeah, the um, probably the uh, Greece town halls aren't as getting as much coverage as even minor league sports in this city. Um yeah, definitely. We're going to take a little break here and come back with more on this subject.
2: Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are.
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined here by Lyle. Hi again. And Zoe. Hi. Um, We've been talking about uh, journalism and how the field has become an increasingly tough place for writers and workers to cut their teeth and to actually make money doing. Um, And this is something that we've seen both in our you know, narrow personal experiences, but we also are witnessing huge shifts in the industry at large. I I came across a statistic earlier today uh, just to give a sense of the scale of the problem is something like 240,000 jobs have been lost in print journalism since 2000. And compare that to, say, coal mining, which you conveniently brought up earlier, Some it's almost 10 times as many jobs being lost. And the coverage of those two job losses is probably, if anything, the other way around. So much focus is going towards, you know, what, what do we do about these coal towns that aren't able to uh, you know, provide living wages anymore when journalism has seen a nationwide decline? Yeah,
2: that's very interesting to me because I come from a coal town um, Mm -hmm. in southwestern Pennsylvania, and I can tell you, based on, you know, just general common sense, that the reason why there are no coal mining jobs is because all the coal in the ground is gone. Yeah. (laughs) Like, for some reason, that never gets brought up, Um, whereas in theory, you know, journalism and keeping up with current events is, you know, something that will never stop happening as long as we have human beings. Mm-hmm. So it should be really easy to make content, and yet content is somehow—it's—we're not getting anything out of it anymore. And that might be getting into like a larger, larger philosophical problem with the news in America. But what? it's
0: just—it
2: it, nothing is happening that is really innovating the content itself.
3: It seems to me part of the problem is this kind of reigning market ideology, where you know if. If a certain industry is is floundering, uh, that's because it's supposed to flounder because or founder. It's supposed to because uh, it's not giving any kind of real value to the community as a whole. Um, it's and being so,
1: disrupted,
3: right? It's being disrupted, and so you know these two hundred and forty thousand journalists that lost their jobs. This is this is what how, what needs to happen in order to provide something that the American people really want. So this really touches on kind of broader ideological debates, um, and I think the argument that those of those of us on the left need to make is that this is actually a perfect example of market failure. Um, is that you know the the the, the, media, the the media the the vulture people that are that are taking that are buying all these newspapers that once had quite. Um, uh, you know, august legacies and histories, and basically turning them into trash. Uh, they don't offer any vision for for journalism, uh, or any vision of what journalism is supposed to uh, provide to the people in any kind of socially beneficial way. Um, and and you know, if you take market logic to ex- to its extreme, then then that is the case that there is no vision. They're simply just making money where you can. And if you look at the, you know, media that's considered relatively helpful for the people and relatively good as far as keeping those in power in check, uh, it's mostly public media, both public media, what's left of it in the United States, and then in Europe. I mean, there's been a number of uh, studies done comparing European media to our own media and then other public forms of media around the world. And it's really public media where you have real journalists doing real journalism, um, and it's because the market mechanism is uh, being removed from from the equation as opposed to being the only part of the equation.
1: Right. I, I think we can say that, you know, there's always going to be this need for reporting on, you know, just basic, you know, quality of life issues and, you know, good governance issues, you know, corruption. And uh, just to clarify, the statistic I cited earlier was only for print media. Presumably some of those jobs have been regained on the digital side of things. But even then, I mean, I don't think it's unfair to say that uh, those jobs are probably getting paid less, they're less stable. And we're also seeing an interesting uh, geographic concentration, where so so much of the new media, the online media is based in like one or two cities, you know, New York, LA, San Francisco, if they're covering tech, whereas, you know, the print media world was based everywhere. Uh, You're not seeing the jobs lost in, I don't know, Raleigh, North Carolina, or in coal country, Pennsylvania, being replaced by, you know, a reporter for BuzzFeed in New York City.
2: Right. Like when that paper closes, it's never coming back because no one's rushing in from, you know, the venture capital world to fill that void. Right. Um, Because they're basically only care, caring about making money through online advertising and, also, you know, through
1: selling data to people in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Lyle, you pointed out this gets to a broader critique we have on the left of capitalism is what happens when the things that are necessary for society to function, you know, can't turn a profit. You know, we've pointed out historically that it's hard to make money off of education. It's hard to make money off of health care and still, you know, provide those things to all the people who need it. And if you have this for-profit model, then, you know, those things are not going to be given to people based on need, but rather based on how much money they have to pay for it.
3: You know, I, 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 I've been speaking abstractly about these kinds of debates that we have, but in a more concrete sense, I mean, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons you see so many kind of politicians that are just you know in the past would have never made it to where they are they would have never become uh candidates in their own major parties whether it's the republican party or the democratic party we're really talking about republican party candidates here um but one of the reasons they've made it so far is that there's there's no longer any local newspapers that are really holding uh these people to account when they were holding lower level positions um so I mean, you can all even say the the race in Alabama, that Senate race with uh, I'm actually forgetting his name right Roy now. Roy Moore, Roy Moore, right? That um, you know, Roy Moore in some way was a product of the death of of local media. I mean, he would have never made it that far if you actually had um, a newspaper newspapers in place that instead of just trying to. Make money, collect people's data, advertise, whatever. Um, you know, actually had a mission that was either that was being enforced in one way or another by by the, the commons, by the state, by by the public um, to ensure that those in power were being held accountable.
2: Right, because wasn't the Roy Moore story broken by the Washington Post?
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. And that's clearly not Alabama. Like they had to get a national reporter with a huge support system. You know, down into that part of the world to do that type of work. uh, Clearly, the the paper, whether it had the resources or not, was not interested in serving the community there. Mm -hmm.
1: I, I think especially what you're seeing is a focus on the short term. You know, in these outlets that are cutting costs and cutting staff, there's it's hard to make money. You know, paying a reporter to dig into a story for five months or however long it takes to uncover what's really going on. Whereas it now, increasingly, it's only the outlets like the Washington Post or the New York Times that are willing to make that sort of expenditure. And on the local level, you're not seeing that as much at all. Uh, Just to give the example of our paper here in Rochester, I've, you know, I subscribe, I, I've seen it whittled from, you know, having, you know, a full section, and then there'd be a section on state and local issues, to, That state and local issues thing is now just a USA Today, you know, subset talking about national politics, basically. And it's owned by the the Gannett chain, which is one of many firms that have sort of concentrated ownership over media in the past 15, 20 years.
2: My goodness, that's depressing.
0: Yeah.
1: And at a time, the biggest issue it posed for me was I wasn't getting the crossword as much, but, you know. It poses a much larger issue if that's your means of getting the news.
2: Oh, I was just going to say, like, I'm not 100 percent sure how people get local news now, like across the board. Like, I know that I get most of my local news living here in Philadelphia now from seeing, like, top stories posted on the Philadelphia subreddit because I had to literally stop listening to NPR after the election because I couldn't emotionally handle it, Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting to me based on um, what Ryan said earlier about public media, like NPR is public media, but they still have lots of sponsors, including like the Gates Foundation and uh, like Kaiser Permanente, who does like this pseudo public uh, health news thing called Kaiser Health News, I think. So like in theory, they're separate from the market, but even when you're dealing with public media, like it's so insidious that it's literally filtered into everything.
3: Yeah, I mean uh, NPR. I'm I, I'm not sure about this, but I'm I, I I'm I'm willing to at least venture this um, that I don't think the majority of their funds anymore is actually public funds. I think it's public media simply because some of the money is is public, is coming from the government. But I think I think we're at a point now where NPR is is majority um, private donors, um, you know, subscribers, and then a lot of I think a lot of it is is classified. I mean, we can't even, as even though it's considered public media, we can't even figure out exactly um, who's giving uh, NPR and some of the local affiliates uh, money at this point.
1: And uh, just to sort of build on that idea is, you know, a lot of outlets are sort of increasingly reliant on sort of these benevolent billionaires to, you know, make ends meet where, you know, the old business model has failed. You know, they aren't getting enough via subscribers or through their online paywalls to pay the bills. And so the Washington Post is now owned by Jeff Bezos, who, you know I mean? He's thought of as this liberal figure, but, you know, I don't know if I would trust news about Amazon coming from the Washington Post, given that they have the same owner. You know, there are obvious conflicts of interest there if that's the model you're going to rely on.
2: Yeah, I mean... I would characterize Jeff Bezos as straight-up evil, like, as a person for possessing that much wealth and not helping people with it. Right. Um, So, yeah, I wouldn't trust anything, really, that The Washington Post publishes regardless. Like, there's always that shadow there, like, could this have been changed or motivated by the ownership?
1: Right. Um, I I think another example uh, in Las Vegas, uh, the local paper there, I think, is the Las Vegas Review Journal. And it's owned by Sheldon Adelson, who is this notorious GOP donor. And one of the issues in Las Vegas is the funding of a new football stadium because the Oakland Raiders will be moving there. And Adelson has a stake in that project. And there was like a real crack down on coverage of, you know, the details of that stadium funding project, which should have been public information, but Las Vegas's largest newspaper wasn't really delving into it because it, you know, this is the guy who's paying the bills.
2: Right. So you're basically putting the workers in in a position where they can't do what in theory their job is supposed to be because they're
1: beholden to these other things? So increasingly, it feels like there's no good way for, you know, uh, journalism outlets to survive. Uh, because if they choose to go the route of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and put things behind a paywall, their biggest stories are often going to end up, you know, on aggregated by outlets like, BuzzFeed and Huffington Post within minutes of them being posted online. And there's so many people who simply aren't willing to pay for journalism these days that it becomes a real area where the market is failing.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Right. I think,
3: um, you know, the one thing that we've talked a little bit about, but I'd like to focus on a little bit more is the role of the internet in all of this and how the internet has changed the political economy of media. Um, so, Zoe, I'm just curious what thoughts you have about that. I have some of my own, but I was just uh, first wanted to just oh, hear. Gosh. Yeah. I mean,
2: it's transformed the economy of everything, it's, and it's terrifying, um, particularly because we've treated the Internet not like a public service or like a public utility, but as like a commodity and a product. Um, so that's been completely overtaken and influenced by capitalist actors like the broadband companies that transmit this data have a vested interest in this data like they collect it they sell it and they also need to turn a profit which means that data access is not as accessible to people who are disadvantaged Um, and also it means that they can control the content that comes across those channels which is why net neutrality has been such a big deal. Um, Like, without net neutrality, you know, my broadband provider, which is Comcast Xfinity, can decide, it could decide tomorrow, like, I'm not allowed to go to the New York Times unless I have a special plan that would allow me access to the New York Times. And And then on top of that, I might get a subscription to the New York Times. And
1: Um, just for reference, Comcast owns a significant chunk of NBC,
2: yes, it does. Um, So they could say, like, all of your NBC-owned news is free, but if you wanted to get something that isn't an NBC affiliate, you'd have to pay extra. Like, without net neutrality, they can completely decide what people consume. Um, And that means that all of the content that we consume online, not just news and valuable information, but our entertainment and art and everything, can be completely determined by these broadband providers if they decide that one type of content isn't going to turn them a profit, or you know, if they want to charge more for something because it's a hot commodity, um, and that puts all of the content in a very precarious position, um, and it basically reduces all content to its profitability as determined by certain actors.
3: Yeah, I mean, just uh, listening to to both of you and and just kind of listening to the the direction this conversation has went, you know, I feel like there's kind of like three primary problems with capitalist media, particularly capitalist media in the age of the Internet. One is you have um, the executive, the ownership class just trying to make money, and that means... You know, uh, doing what they can to get our data and to and to sell it to people, doing what they can to just advertise, you know, get advertising dollars, um, and doing what they can to cut costs and and to cut labor, labor costs, right? So that's one that's one problem, and then kind of going along with that, but it's 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 kind of almost um, um, it's a parallel issue. Is there's kind of a soft censorship that happens where, for instance, we were talking about Jeff Bezos. So Washington Post does not criticize Amazon. <laughs> I mean Jeff Be- Bezos is the most ri- the richest man ever in history. I think he now has 150 billion dollar his net worth is now 150 billion dollars. He can't um he makes so much money every day that there's no way that he can uh, what is it not get richer yeah he can there's no way he can not get richer because he's just the, the capital gains are just so gargantuan at this point um he doesn't pay he didn't pay any or amazon didn't pay any corporate income tax i believe in 2017 and none of this from what i understand was being covered in the washington post and um, because the owners of the other newspapers, you know, share similar class interests, it's very rare that you have these other newspapers going after Bezos as well. I mean, there was one piece in the Atlantic recently that went after Bezos, and that was very—that was kind of a rare species. I mean, you don't—you you rarely see that. So that's kind of a soft censorship. But you actually start as as media consolidates more and more, and as the government deregulates more and more, you're actually seeing real kind of hard forms of censorship at this point, um, particularly on the internet. I had a friend of mine that, that covers um, uh, media from a, from a left wing perspective, and he wrote something on Twitter about um, it was something about Twitter and their own labor policies, and basically it was getting shadow banned or 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 uh, no it was well yeah it, basically anyone who would see his comment. They wouldn't for before they could see the comment. It would say something like, "This content might be inappropriate for you."
0: Oh <laughs> my goodness!
3: Yeah, and then he so he screenshotted it, and he's a serious journalist. I mean, he has an impeccable pedigree. He writes for a lot of the major publications. Um, so this isn't just a random person. This is someone with some level of social and cultural capital, and he's getting censored in a very hard, explicit way. In a way that you know everyone else can see it. <laughs> Uh, and they're not afraid. I mean, you know they they are not afraid. Uh, to, so it's, no, it's Twitter
2: knows absolutely that they are the arbiter of all of this, even though I think that Jack Dorsey tries to claim that he isn't and that they're trying to be a neutral platform. I mean, I think he's just straight up delusional. That's just my and possibly white supremacist. That's just my personal take, obviously. But like he they I think that the company itself is well aware of how influential they are and how, by silencing someone on their platform that they completely reduce that person's ability to speak on other platforms because Twitter is like a vector for all of their other content.
1: I think what we're seeing is sort of an increase in the way which, you know, what might have once been called the public sphere is now under private ownership. It's now taking place, you know, the discourse is now taking place on Twitter, which is a privately owned company and not beholden to some of the rules on censorship that might limit the government from blocking someone's, you know, uh, reporting. There was this surreal
3: interview between um, Brian Stelt- Steltler or St- Stetler, or whatever his yeah. name, he's got that show on CNN about media. So this is a guy whose job is to cover media. And he had this interview with Jack Dorsey. And it was this softball interview, where he's basically portraying uh, Dorsey as some kind of hero for trying to, um, you know, make the discussion on Twitter more civ- civilized and to keep out the Russians. That's another thing we could talk about: is how the Russian narrative has basically been been used in a way to basically kind of open the floodgates for kind of more hard forms of censorship. Um, you know, and, and that's actually a debate within the left. I know there's a lot on the left that think that Twitter and Facebook should be censoring fascists and, and what have you, and I think there's, there's legitimate um, arguments to that end, but there's no doubt that they're also censoring uh, many people on the left, and they're doing it in the name of civility, in the name of you know keeping out so-called Russian agents or people that are aligned with the Russian government in some way. So there's a lot of scary stuff going on. Anyway, Stelt, Steltler, at, at one point, Jack Dorsey says that we're, we're the public square now. Twitter, Facebook, Google is the public square. And you would think that some, a journalist, you know, a prominent journalist at CNN who covers media for his career would ask at that point, well, if, if you are the public square, isn't that a problem? Isn't there a problem that, uh, you know, a, f- a handful Does of he? billionaires now own the public square? And he didn't follow, it, uh, follow up with that. In fact, he said, yeah, you are the public square, and I'm glad to know that you're doing a better job, uh, you know, enforcing civility norms <laughs>
1: And then isn't there a place oh, for the public to step in? If that is the public's square, isn't it You know, the public's responsibility rather than Jack Dorsey, owner of Twitter? Right. It, and then there's another <laughs> layer to this in which so much of what's being reported and the stories of, you know, maybe less so the New York Times, but definitely outlets like BuzzFeed and Huffington Post, they are being – shaped specifically to spread on outlets like Twitter and Facebook. You know, Facebook and Twitter have so monopolized, you know, how people get news that the outlets are having to respond to that by creating a more viral content and more shareable content. And that definitely has an impact on the quality of reporting and coverage.
2: Yeah. And the amount of money that you're willing to pay someone to do that kind of work, like if all someone's doing is doing like small graphics for the Twitter, you know, card, (laughs) then that person could be like a part time person or like an intern. They're they're reducing uh, the need in their organization for real full time reporters.
1: I I think what we've laid out in this segment is that there are a lot of real problems with the journalism industry as it is being conducted under capitalism. Um, When we come back after this brief break, we're going to talk about the ways in which we might envision a different way of going about it.
2: You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, still here with Lyle. Glad to be here. And Zoe. Hello. Um, We've been spending the last 45 minutes or so talking about uh, the media and why it has become a worse place for workers and writers and definitely a worse place for readers and consumers of news, which is, as we talked briefly about, it's at its finest, news can be a public service. It is, you know, journalism is how you find out about corruption in local government. It's how you find out about stories like the Flint water crisis, which are so often you know, denied and underplayed by public officials that you really need journalism there as a line of defense against what you know, otherwise could happen from private and public actors alike. Um, so we've laid out that the current system, you know, under capitalism, journalism is either failing to make money or it is failing to provide a good product for people. And so now what we want to spend the last 10 or so minutes of this show talking about is how might it be different if, say, we had our way instead of the Jack Dorseys and Jeff Bezos of the world? Thoughts?
2: I think we should nationalize Twitter. That's the first step.
1: It, it's not a bad first step. Here, here. Second.
2: Well, we'd have to have a government in place that isn't, you know, a fascist white supremacist actor. Right. But if we had a good socialist government in place, then we would nationalize Twitter mm-hmm. um, and make make it so Twitter is the property of the people who actually use it, and not Jack Dorsey.
1: In effect, Twitter would be a utility like electricity or water, because it has, as we talked about, it's become so ingrained as you know the public square, so to speak, and it is how Twitter and Facebook especially, or how so many people get their news and information and stay in, and just at a more basic level, stay in touch with their friends and people they know. And to have all that and all that information and data in the hands of private actors, there's huge problems with that.
3: Yeah, and I do think it's, yeah.
2: it's
3: go ahead, Zoe. Um, I was gonna
2: say specifically, after we nationalized those platforms are perhaps before we would also want to nationalize broadband internet service and cellular, uh, data service in the country. If not totally nationalize it, then strongly increase, uh, the ability of the government to regulate it as a utility and also, uh, good regulations in place to prevent monopolies. Yeah, definitely.
3: definitely. There's a really good writer on this called Ben, his name's Ben Tarnoff, uh, and he writes for Jacobin and guardian and a number of other publications and he writes a lot about these different kinds of ways to socialize um, ISPs, internet service providers, um, and, and other aspects of the internet infrastructure. And so there's actually, this is being done. I mean, in Chattanooga, they, they've socialized uh, the ISP there.
1: Municipal internet.
3: Yeah, municipal internet. Um, and, you know, there's no reason you can't use similar models for, for you know, Amazon and Google and Twitter. Uh, And there are models, you know, I I talked about public media in Europe, and, you know, these models might not go as far as we would like them to go. But even BBC, BBC, you know, it's not great, but it's certainly better than most of the uh, private media we see here in the United States. Uh, they you know it is a public model to a large degree it's it, it it's, it's at the beginning of something i think it could be a lot more public um it could ho- it could you can put mechanisms in place so that it's even more shielded from kind of capitalist interests um but it does a pretty good job again relative to our own media to to do you know to encourage real journalism that keeps um keeps people accountable um so and i do i do think it's important to is
2: pretty good
3: too right 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 I think it is important to kind of distinguish between, I mean, I'm fine with the term state media, but I know a lot of Americans, when they hear state media, they think of Stalinist media. Um, So in my mind, you know, when when I think of state media, I'm thinking of public media. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not run by this cabal of, you know, a a vanguard or whatever. It's, It's... it's you have a system in place in which the 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 public as a whole has uh, a, a stake that everyone is a stakeholder or shareholder in some way or another, and that when it comes to management, um, everyone you know there's there's a real kind of democratic uh, accountability. Um, so, for instance, if the state decides to go to war, uh, there's a firewall between uh, their own decision to go to war and the kind of content and commentary, commentary that you're hearing from the actual public media itself. And these again, these mechanisms are already in place in, in many parts of the world, and, and they work.
1: There are also alternate models that you see in just the past of this country. Like, historically, we didn't have these sort of monopolistic newspapers in every city where m- most cities, except for maybe, you know, New York or Boston, have just one or two major papers that, you know, strive for uh, non-bias, I guess you could say. And, uh, and you know, the outlets of the past were often directly funded by political parties and political causes. And obviously there are, there's bias in, at play there, but I think in some ways that's a healthier outlook and it's still the case in some European countries where major outlets are more open about their bias and not, you know, sort of playing at this objectivity which cannot exist and, you know, sometimes that leads to issues of false equivalence and false balance. Um, So I think, but when you give, instead of, you know, parties and or the public, the power over outlets, and instead give that power to unaccountable, you know, private officials, you know, the Bezoses, the uh, Sheldon Adelsons. I don't think the public benefits from that either. Oh, so um, I, I would
3: just add to that. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about still, you know, to the extent that we talk about public media and state media, still allowing a framework in which really anybody or any group of people can have their own kind of media on the side. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and I think that's actually a really good check to the kind of less healthy state media models that we might have seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's important. Uh, also what you said about um, kind of moving beyond this object ob- objectivity myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, when I think of public media, I don't think of objective media. I right. think of... Uh, media that would uh, host also uh, you know a vast array of different opinions, but it would all be quality opinions. It would all it would all be people that know what they're talking about, and they're talking not so that they can make money for the owners, in one way or another, but because they really believe what they're saying and they have some kind of credibility
1: to say it. We used to have what would be called advocacy journalism. You know, a lot of outlets. You think of the past, uh, you know, the muckrakers of you know history class. Uh, where, you know, people could be open advocates for societal change and still report on the issues of the day, often because of those principles.
2: Yeah, I've had my work criticized frequently for having a bias, but it's like, but, you know, obviously we all have bias. Like, where are you getting this magic myth that there is an objective perspective that you can inhabit? <laughs> like, no one is 100% objective. Obviously, I have a bias. Obviously, I have an opinion, especially mm-hmm. like, if I'm writing an op-ed. You know, obviously, it's my opinion. Like, I'm not trying to please you. I'm trying to write something that states a strong stance on an issue. Like, that's the whole point.
1: Yeah, I th- I think people have gotten sort of a skewed idea about what bias even is and the ability for an outlet, any outlet, to get rid of it completely. Um, and partly that owes to sort of our concentration of media. You know, when you have only one or two outlets, they take bigger strides towards having at least that appearance of objectivity and that appearance of being unbiased. But they're always providing, a, offering a perspective. I, I
3: think, um, yeah, there's also kind of a chicken before the egg problem here, Um you know on the other hand we want to make we want to we want to make more uh, social goods actually social and public um, and we want to decommodify um, sectors of the economy that we believe should be decommodified um, but in order to do that uh, you need to change the political culture um, so the question for I guess leftists and socialists is how do we how do we solve this chicken for the egg problem H- um, how do we
1: make it so that outlets feel they need to change.
3: Right. And I guess my own thinking on this matter, and this is what I was thinking about really in the beginning of our discussion about unionization and how the New Yorker is now unionizing, and you have other outlets as well that are unionizing, but it seems like such an uphill battle. And I think, you know, one possibility here is to certainly continue to include, uh, to encourage these kind of unionization drives from the bottom up. But also to really encourage some of the stuff that's happening at the reformist in the reformist wing of uh, or the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, you have Elizabeth Warren now, who's pushing for you know, kind of German style co determination, um, where you know all the workers in any given corporation uh, need to be represented on the corporate boards. To you know, I think it's forty percent of the corporate bar- boards will be workers. In France, you have what's called sectoral collective bargaining, where a certain percentage um of well not a certain percentage but every industry has a strong representation of the workers uh, in every sector so what i'm saying is i think we do have to combine these kind of bottom up efforts with a, a form a kind of top-down reformism uh because otherwise i don't it's just it's just too much of an uphill battle
1: well just to get back to the unionization idea i, I think um recently we saw the the la times uh Unionized and they did so just in time because their ownership at the time was Tronk, this sort of media conglomerate that thrives on gutting outlets and then selling them to the highest bidder, you know, stripping them of their, you know, heavy costs and then getting rid of it without regard to the actual product they're putting out. And it was only because of the Times uh, unionization that they prevented that from happening. Uh, Tronk ended up selling. I'm not sure if it was at a loss, but they weren't able to p- conduct the heavy cuts that they had planned on. And the LA Times is now in a much healthier place than it would have been had capital had its way.
2: That's certainly a cautionary tale about how urgent it is for yeah. like established media organizations to get their decks in a row and figure out how they're going to beat this thing.
1: Yeah, because the LA Times has been around for 130 years, probably, and this is actually the first time they've had a union in its newsroom. Worker power is one of the only ways to prevent the uh, more severe changes and the worst changes we fear in the industry. And the, I guess the big question is then, how do we build that power at a time when, as we've seen, writers and journalists have very little leverage over these outlets?
3: Yeah, I'm just, I just, an analogy just came to mind. So I I think uh, what's going on right now is you're kind of seeing the equivalent of pushing for like healthcare um, benefits in any particular firm. Mm -hmm. So you have, you now have kind of efforts to push for some kind of labor rights for journalists in particular firms. Um, But what we really need, I think, is a kind of universal healthcare equivalent in in the journalism sector, uh, where where labor rights are guaranteed, labor representation is guaranteed for everyone in the mm-hmm. industry, including uh, freelancers to some yeah, degree definitely. so this is what I'm talking about when it comes to both the bottom up and the top down i think I think we I'd like to see a little bit more of the top down at this point because otherwise I don't see uh, you know every uh, even a majority of uh journalism workplaces getting unionized on their but, own but, because
1: yeah. the economics are such that you know given the ability to Outlets will choose freelancers they will underpay freelancers rather than take on unionized full-time staff. Right. And so the economic incentives under capitalism are very much opposed to offering quality journalism. And if you take nothing else from this past hour of radio, that's the lesson we want to leave you with. Um, it's been a really fun discussion. Uh, it's, we've covered a lot of important points. Um, I'm Ryan. I'm Lyle. I'm Zoe. This is Punching Out. I'm punching out. I'm punching
0: out. I'm You've been listening punching you to now. Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at punching, punching Out LEO.